G'day, Dominic Barfield here, and this is the RVC Clinical Podcast. Thank you for listening, and thank you for subscribing on your smartphone or generic fruit-based device. We're really grateful for you taking the time to download and listen to this RVC podcast. And we don't ask for much in return, but we're incredibly grateful if you could pop to Apple Podcast or Acast or wherever you're listening to this podcast and leave us a review. Obviously, a five-star review would be great to try and get this information out to the people that want to listen to it. But we really appreciate if you could you know, take a couple of moments of your time to leave us a review. So we're still remotely recording, um, obviously with the with the you know current pandemic makes sense. And so joining Brian and myself uh, uh, remotely, um, we have Associate Professor of Small Animal Surgery, Dr. Carla Lee, joining us. So Carla, how how are you? Hello, I'm very well, thank you. Yes. And um, it's, it's taken me a while to uh, to manage to get you into into the remote sort of studio, um, but I, I know you're very interested in minimally invasive surgery, and I thought that would be the the topic that we should um, we should talk about sort of t- today. So, um, so could I could I first sort of ask what 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 do we actually mean by minimally invasive surgery? So it's whereby we use. Um cameras um, to look inside the thorax or the abdomen and so we can this allows us to use much smaller incisions to do um, abdominal and thoracic surgery and so is, is this the is this the same thing as as like a video assisted surgery so yes so it's the same as video assisted surgery which could be seen as endoscopic surgery because indeed we're using endoscopes um, a form of endoscope so rigid scopes to look into the thorax and abdomen so it's the same as video assisted yes and and is there quite a lot of uh, equipment that one needs for this Carla or is it um, you know it, well, apart from like the, the video sort of equipment so you do need an initial setup yes um, if you're already using endoscopy in your practice um, you may already have lots of the equipment so you need a video camera unit with a light source um, and you need a monitor to view um, the video. Um, for laparoscopic surgery, so that's abdominal surgery, you also need to inflate the abdomen with carbon dioxide. And this allows you to create a working space in order to see the different abdominal organs. So you also need a CO2 insulator in order to do that. And then you need the um, different instruments, so the camera, the actual laparoscope or the thoracoscope, and then you need special instruments that you can pass down um, five millimeter um, ports um, that pass into the abdomen in order to do the surgery that you need to do. So there is an initial outlay in terms of um, equipment. So, so I imagine that, or, or what, I, what I've seen in, in the, um, I suppose in the, in the hospital and the referral setting that we're that we're in, that uh, a lot of time the orthopedic surgeons are using um, this sort of these sort of cameras to have a look in joints or small spaces. See, so, see, so it seems that now there's a bit of a, a trend to use this for as as said, like so laparotomies or thoracotomies and and what what is the like the rationale behind that is is that because we have this equipment or do we think that it's it's better for the patients yeah so you're exactly right so with um, orthopedic surgery they're already using cameras or arthroscopes to see into joints and that came into veterinary medicine much faster than um laparoscopic surgery or thoracoscopic surgery and it, I think it's because it's just so much easier to see the joint surfaces with a small camera than actually opening up that joint. Um, why has it been a bit slower to come into um, 
abdominal surgery and thoracic surgery, perhaps because um, many of the specialist surgeons were so good at open surgery that um, then to change from being an open surgeon to a keyhole surgeon, there's a little quite a bit of a learning curve. Um, and so then I think that it's it can be um, challenging to decide that you're going to, to take on that learning curve when you're already such a good open surgeon. But I think as soon as you become a minimally invasive surgeon, you can see the benefits. And I think we're seeing um, minimally invasive surgery creep into veterinary medicine more because humans are doing much more keyhole surgery as well. And so if someone can see the benefit for themselves, then hopefully they can see the benefit for their pet. And I guess it's good to think about, well, what are those benefits? Well, we're making much smaller incisions to access the abdomen and the thorax. So um, there's decreased pain, um, there's decreased wound complications, and there's absolutely faster recovery from surgeries. So these benefits are really real. As soon as you start doing minimally invasive surgery, you see them in the pets and their faster recovery, the decreased amount of, of analgesia that um, you need to use. So you said there's a, a bit of a, up, um, an upskilling sort of re required for the use of, of this. And, and can you explain a bit about how one sort of one can get get training for this or are there avenues in the in the veterinary world for specific training for th this type of surgery yeah so i would say that it's um that they're completely different skills that you need you need um quite specific psychomotor skills because you are operating in a cavity and you're seeing what you're doing um, two-dimensionally on a screen so you've got to really begin to coordinate how you're using your hands and um, with what you're seeing on a video screen which isn't necessarily um, intuitive to lots of open surgeons interestingly um, <laughs> there's a notion that if you've played a lot of video games um, now when you were younger that perhaps you have lots of those skills already um, I think that um, for me, in terms of how do we learn these skills, I think it is a real challenge in veterinary medicine. I think when you're at veterinary school, we're really taught what they call day one skills and minimally invasive surgery wasn't really seen as a day one skill. So, um, for example, in our course here at the RVC, there isn't really um, practical training in minimally invasive surgery. I'd say that there are also not that many courses out there to learn once you're actually a, a vet. I think that the way most surgeons um, learn minimally invasive surgery is by doing surgeries that are very familiar to them. And so that's basically neutering. Um, and I think because um, most vets are so good at neutering, then to learn minimally invasive surgery by learning how to do minimally invasive surgery uh, sorry, a uh, minimum invasive neuter, that's the way that most vets would learn. But then it's like an extra step to being able to do more than just neutering. For myself, I think that um, um, simulator training using computers is really the best way forward. Um, we know that in human medicine, you need to be doing like 50 to 100 or even more minimum invasive surgeries before you can call yourself competent. And I think in veterinary medicine, we're just, it's very difficult to achieve that in any other surgery apart from neutering. And so um, for me, I've um, trained in a, with a computer simulator, which is um, 
you can learn all of those psychomotor skills um, through basic skills training. And I think that that's really the way forward. So how did you get in, involved in, in that kind of say, Is that software that's available um, on, online or you, you, you have to um, buy it? Or is that, that through um, sort of the, the human professionals, the human medical professionals? So um, there are um, computer simulator centers within um, medical schools. And so there's one just down the road at the Royal Free from me in London. Um, it's not just a computer program because you have to have um, all of the, um, it has to be like your operating. So you've got to have the hand pieces um, and you've got to have a program which is going to teach you the skills that you need. So on the program that I learned on, it was teaching you basic skills, you know, maybe moving um, one ball from another place or tracking a moving ball or cutting out a circle. But then the next step is actually to um, actually um, practice on a real specific surgery. So um, the surgery that I've practiced most on is um, cholecystectomies, but it's a program for human cholecystectomies. So whilst I can learn the skills, I know that um, that program isn't necessarily giving me as much um, as it might do if it were specifically veterinary related. Um, I know there's a centre in Spain which is very keen on um, minimally invasive um, surgeries and procedures, and so they're creating um, programs specifically veterinary related. Um, other um, centers are um, doing sort of a compromise, not completely computer simulated, but actually creating like a plasticine model of the abdominal contents within a box. And then you can um, use your um, um, laparoscopic kit to actually practice within that box. So you can also create your own um, um kit for practicing which is something that i definitely recommend and can, can i ask are there, I'm sorry if this is a bit too um basic but but are there the instruments sort of similar in the, what you would normally use as in are there scalpels do you put sutures around thing or is it more electrocautery um than actually using the the, the same sort of techniques instruments hemostasis wise as well as cutting things out yeah so that's a really uh, interesting question and it's interesting the things that you picked up on so I think that one of the other advantages of laparoscopic and thoracoscopic surgery which I didn't touch on is that perhaps it's safer and I think it might be safer because we're using newer technologies which are safer so um, for example in SPA we need to um in open spaying, we would tie off those ovarian vessels with a suture so it's actually really difficult to tie sutures um, in a minimally invasive way. So it's seen as one of the skills which is more advanced. So instead of tying sutures, we use um, vessel sealing devices, which um, basically um, it's, it's like a jaw which um, holds onto the vessel, it compresses the vessel, heats it up, and it creates a protein coagulum which then seals the vessel before it cuts it. So you can do all of those steps with just one instrument. Um, and it's been shown that that vessel seal is more stronger and safer and more secure than a suture. So that is one way in which um, um, minimum invasive surgery is different from open surgery. Um, then we do have instruments which are very similar 
to open surgery instruments, but they're much smaller because when we place a uh, minimally invasive instrument into the abdomen or the thorax, we have to place it via a port. And those ports are either just a bit bigger than five millimeters or 10 millimeters. So all of our instruments have to pass down these ports. So you can see that the actual tip of the instrument um, is going to be quite small. So we can have um, laparoscopic scissors and forceps, um, just as we have with open surgery. Um, thinking about um, sutures, um, we can suture within the abdomen. So one of the common um, surgeries that's performed apart from neutering is gastropexy. Um, and that's for um, the prevention of um, gastric dilatation and volvulus in predisposed breeds such as Great Danes and German Shepherd dogs. And when we first, when you first learn to do um, a minimum invasive gastropexy, what you do is you pick up the um, stomach wall with a pair of forceps um, within the abdomen and you push that stomach wall towards um, the body wall and then you'd make an incision from external through the body wall and you'd grasp the stomach um, from inside to outside and then you'd actually place the stitches to stitch the stomach to the body wall from external. But um, one step on from that in the learning curve is actually to place those sutures within the abdomen. So actually using a pair of two pairs of needle holders to place those sutures. And um, th this would be seen as possibly a better way because it's totally um, internal. You're placing those stitches. So then the suture that we actually use, because it's seen as difficult to tie a knot within the abdomen, we use a barbed suture, which, um, as its name suggests, has little barbs. They look like perhaps little thorns and they all face one direction so as you pass it through the tissues it can pass through the tissues but then the suture can't fall back because of these barbs preventing it from going back through the tissue so that barbed suture basically um, holds onto the tissues stronger than just a smooth um, suture so that would be more appropriate for um, um, placing a suture line inside the abdomen without having to place lots of knots so it's yeah, absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> so some of this, uh, I suppose, the equipment has a has a cost in itself. But I imagine, um, as in as in the the scapes and the instruments that you have, I imagine things like this suture is quite specific and probably quite quite expensive as well. Would that be a fair assessment compared to regular suture? So yeah, the suture would be um, more expensive. But I think that um, I guess you see everything on balance. Um, so whilst we use, for example, the vessel sealing devices also come at a, at a cost, you get the, the unit, which you then attach the vessel sealing forceps to, and those forceps um, have a lifetime. You can't continue to use them um, um, for multiple surgeries in humans, they're single use. So in veterinary medicine, we use them, I don't know, maybe up to 20 times. So there is a, a cost um, involved to so certainly a minimally invasive spay would be more expensive than an, an open spay. But I really feel that, um, that the benefits we can get um, would really outweigh that that cost. And what do you feel, because obviously you're, you're a very experienced surgeon, and do you, do you think part of the learning curve is, is about how um, you, you're visually looking at something and using instruments rather than actually you know, feeling the, the, the tissues in your hands. Is that quite a difficult thing to get used to? I think um, it's a good point. 
I think you're right. You feel things when you're an open surgeon with your hands through the instruments. And then I think when you progress to doing something in a minimally invasive way, you're just holding the instruments and you think to yourself, can I really feel these tissues through the instruments? So um, can I convert that feel, that feedback that I'm getting in the instruments onto the screen that I'm seeing? So actually seeing what I'm doing, can I translate that pressure <laughs> into my hands and then onto the screen? Does, and does it all add up? And um, I, when I first started doing minimally invasive surgery, I was doing spays and I didn't really feel that I could feel the tissues. And then I spent a long time doing um, computer simulation training. And then when I went back to doing surgery on animals, I actually realized that I was feeling. So you do feel <laughs> and you can get that feedback. But I think it's something that your brain has to learn um, and learn that it's there. Yeah. And apart from like the, the normal, uh, I suppose, complications of, of surgery in, in general, such as, you know, hemostasis or what, what happens when things go wrong, are there any, is there anything different with minimally invasive surgery about things going wrong? So whether the, the gas going in or the, or the equipment it, itself? Yeah, so... Um, certainly there are um, complications um, specific to minimum invasive surgery and um, I think that um, one set of complications I would see is anesthesia related and it's due to the fact that you have to create that working space by inflating the abdomen with carbon dioxide so we'd be inflating the abdomen to pressures of um, somewhere between maybe eight and 15 millimeters of mercury. And that increase in pressure within the abdomen can put pressure on the diaphragm and then the thorax and can compromise ventilation. So that's something that we need to think about. And if we can, we try to minimize the amount of, of carbon dioxide we put into the abdomen um, while still achieving what we um, need to achieve. And certainly when we think about the thorax, um, that's a, a fixed space. We don't put carbon dioxide into that space um, um, to in order to visualize things. But what we need to do in the thorax is we need to make sure that we don't actually create a tension pneumothorax. So the, when we make a, a port into the thorax, I actually make sure that air can move freely um, in and out of the chest in order not to create that tension pneumothorax and, the, and then the possible um, cardiovascular effects of that increase in pressure in the thorax or indeed in the abdomen. Um, I think that another um, big set of complications is actually placing the ports. So um, we're making very small incisions into the abdomen or into the chest. And that first port that we make is, I would say, blind. So we make a, a port maybe, um, you know, maximum um, 10 millimeters in size and then we have to place a cannula so it, which can be with a sharp point into the abdomen um, and um, that very first cannula is possible that you could inadvertently damage something within the abdomen and so for routine space the big thing that we worry about is the spleen because if we pierce it then obviously we're going to have um, significant bleeding so hemorrhage as a result of port placement is, is another um, big complication that we can have. 
after you place that first port, the second port you'll place under direct visualization because you can place your camera into the abdomen or the thorax. So it's always that first port that you worry most about. And then I think um, it's important to think that when we do open surgery, we see the whole abdomen. When you're doing minimally invasive surgery, you don't see the whole abdomen at the same time. And it's possible that you've, if you've got an instrument in the abdomen and you're not actually following it with your camera, that that instrument could do inadvertent damage to an organ. So you just have to be really alert as to where your instruments are. And I think, um, as you say, it, it is that we've talked about the fact that there is a learning curve. And I think that we need to consider that when we start doing things more than just space, that it may be that we can't achieve what we want to achieve. And sometimes recognizing that before spending a lot of time is really important. So um, we can talk about complications, but I think we should also talk about conversions. So the point at which we decide that it's possible we might enter a complication. So instead of going into that complication, we decide to convert to open surgery. And for me, I think that um, when we're learning minimally invasive surgery, we should see conversions as almost routine. I don't think we should see them as a sign of failure, but a way of doing what we think is best um, for the patient with the expertise and the equipment that, that we have. So, so I suppose you, you would still prep the patient as, as you as you would do a um, a normal uh, laparotomy as well. So if you're going into into the into the abdomen, so you so to, to convert would be a um, you wouldn't have to do necessarily anything else for the for the patient. Yeah, absolutely. So um, that's I guess it's raised that's raised a good point. So when <clears throat> when we go into the minimally invasive surgeries, we always, as you say, before we enter the theatre, we prep the animal as though we were going to convert to an open surgery because um, many of the reasons for so there I guess there are two reasons for conversion one could be an elective reason and the next could be emergent and if it's for an emergency reason that you need to convert to open then you need to get in as soon as possible which is doesn't really give you the time to take the animal back to the prep room to clip a bit more so things that might require an emergent um, conversion would be for example bleeding and why does it become emergent you're thinking well why don't we see when we make that um that that wound to the blood vessel or the organ as I say, sometimes you can make an inadvertent injury. So actually, you only realise that you're bleeding when the anaesthetist or you observe that the animal is becoming hypotensive, by which point you have um, lost a significant amount of blood. The other reason for an emergent conversion, say for the thorax, would be if actually you um, the pressure in the thorax got too high and it did compromise the blood flow back to the heart. And you can see that that might result in a sudden reason to need to convert. Um, so, yeah, we always prepare them um, um, for open surgery. So yeah. you, you spoke a, a little um, about like, people sort of starting on the, the kind of routine surger, surgeries that they would do, perform normally, so, so, so the neutering sort of procedures. So do you, do you think that there are certain procedures that you um, would like to to sort of concentrate on and minimally invasive or, or where, the, where the benefits were? I suppose you, you spoke about... A biliary surgery for um for for people like do you think that's a, an area for um soft tissue surgery that you you think or 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 something something else like biopsies like where, where do you think the the strengths are for minimum invasive procedures and i suppose following on from that carla do you think that um it's a 
potentially going to open our eyes to being able to do more because of having a camera and and, and fine you know, smaller movements potentially or, or greater visualization yeah so i think that um yeah so routinely um in veterinary medicine we'd see space being done and gastropexies i think the next step is to do um 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 so exploratory laparotomies um, using the keyhole approach so um exploratory laparoscopies um and i think that certainly um that's a there's a definite huge benefit there over a, a, an open um, laparotomy. So if you're getting liver biopsies, it allows you to see the whole liver as well as um, taking those biopsies. You can get bile, um, bile samples very easily. Um, you can also go on to run the whole intestines. Um, and what we do with that is actually we create a bit bigger of a hole into the abdomen, so a bit bigger than our, our regular instrument and camera ports. And we place a, a special um, wound retractor device, which is circular, so maybe um, three centimeters or so in diameter. And um, we actually then pull out pieces of intestine to biopsy. And I've often thought that actually that's a little bit more superior than an open laparotomy because then you take out the piece of intestine and you will get no um, leak of um, intestinal contents actually inside the abdomen. That's all done outside of the abdomen. I think that um, diagnostic thoracoscopy um, is the benefits of that are um, really um, much greater than open thoracotomy. Um, and so that's something that um, um, we should definitely um, be doing. I think with the um, um, diagnostic laparoscopy and thoracoscopy, there are certain um, contraindications, which sometimes does limit um, what we do, especially um, in our hospital, which sees quite a large number of emergency um, cases. So if there's a significant amount of fluid within the chest or the abdomen, then that's a contraindication because then you really limits what you can see even um, with suction devices. So if you've got hemo abdomen, septic abdomen, pyothorax, those are our are contraindications. Um, other surgeries which I think um, would be really important to do using a minimally invasive approach. I think the um, pericardiectomies um, for pericardial effusions. I think that's, um, I mean, the, it's a, it's so much less invasive than an open thoracotomy, and um, it's something that's very achievable. Um, I think some th um, surgery that I'd like to see us doing more of would be. Um, lung lobectomies. Um, I think that it's important, case selection is really important when you're doing meninvasive surgeries. And so in terms of thinking about what cases would be appropriate for lung lobectomies, we have to be having lesions which are on the periphery of lung lobes, um, initially starting out with um, smaller masses, maybe of about four centimeters before um, but progressing onto, onto larger masses. Um, in terms of abdominal laparoscopy surgeries, we're doing more um, splenectomies. Um, and that's, um, I think, really useful for those cases whereby, you know, they've got, they've had um, CT of their thorax and abdomen in order to look for metastases. And we found a nodule within the spleen. And these clients, um, often the, the animal has a, a diagnosed tumor somewhere else. And they're, so they're quite, um, the, 
they're quite keen in order to to rule out um, that there aren't any other signs of tumour anywhere else. And so to do a laparoscopic splenectomy um, really um, decreases the um, morbidity of that patient who's often having another um, tumour removed elsewhere. So how do you actually remove a, a spleen in a minimally invasive way, Carlos? <laughs> yeah, so it's quite a big organ, I guess, is what you're thinking. And so how do we do that? I think, um, so we... Th- so the way to do it is to actually um, ligate all the hyalur blood vessels using a vessel sealing device. And I think what we forget is the amount, the size of the spleen, which is actually dependent on the blood supply. So actually, as you go along and you um, seal and, and cut the hyalur blood vessels to the spleen, the spleen actually starts um, shrinking in size. Once you've um, sealed and cut all of those blood vessels, then um, you would place a um, one of the um, wound retractor devices that I um, discussed for um, um, diagnostic laparoscopy into the abdomen, into creating a wound that you felt was just um, big enough for to, to take the spleen out of. So again, um, we'd be looking at maybe a diameter of five centimeters, um, depending on the size of the of the dog, <clears throat> and then you can actually um, remove that spleen by. I've got quite small hands <laughs> by putting your your hand into the abdomen, and I think that um, for splenectomies, it's um, I think it's a, a good um, subject to think about then whether you can combine actually a minimally invasive approach with a sort of a smaller open approach. And I think if you combine those two things, one you can upskill in terms of what you're doing in a minimally invasive way, but you're not compromising. Um, patient care and it's just speeding up your um, surgery initially. So, for example, in um, in human medicine, when they talk about um, laparoscopic assisted splenectomy, um, you might even see the surgeon's hand actually going into the abdomen via a smaller port, um, smaller than they would do for an open surgery in order to pick up the spleen. So I think to do a combination of approaches is not a bad thing and it's um, helping you to upskill. That's that's great, Carla. And, and the um, in in people, I mean, for, again, forgive me if I'm really wrong at this. That we get a lot of adhesions. Is that right with abdominal surgery? And and is that one of the reasons why minimally invasive might be um, might be perceived sort of better because of the, the sort of complications associated with surgery? Maybe that would be good for for horses as as well. But are there um, other benefits or or has our papers sort of coming out about looking at comparisons between minimally invasive options in small animals or, or horses, for example, and comparing that to routine, if you like, open procedures? Ah, so in... So you mean within like dogs comparing a surgery that's done open to... to yeah. yeah. So... Um, there are papers emerging, um, and um, so they to prove, for example, the um, decreased pain. Um, so that's been done sh- using pain scoring techniques, which are s- subjective, but then more objective measures. For example, measuring cortisol, which is a marker of stress. They've shown that dog stress levels are less using a minimally invasive approach versus an open approach. And really, we're looking here at, at neutering procedures. Um, there's been st- uh, quite a big study to look at um, wound complications associated with minimally invasive surgeries versus open surgeries. Um, it's quite a 
big study um, with more than 100 um, dogs in each um, arm. And it looked at a range of um, laparoscopic procedures. Um, so the percentage of, of wound infections was higher in the open surgeries, but about just over 5%. And the keyhole surgeries did have a lower um, wound infection rate, but they weren't able to prove significance. And they suggested that maybe there were some um, confounding factors in the way the two groups were, were made. So there are there are those studies. I guess one thing that's come out when we compare open versus keyhole in veterinary medicine is that um, the keyhole surgeries are taking longer than the open surgeries. And I think that's something useful for people who are starting out in minimally invasive surgery to be aware of, that um, one of the advantages is not necessarily being faster. Um, but I think that that doesn't detract from the from the from the benefits, they still have, you know, faster recovery times, even though it, it took a longer surgery. Um, I guess, can I come back to one of your questions? Because I was thinking um, about um, in terms of wound complications and which surgeries we should be doing, adrenalectomies um, are reported. And that's something that I'd like to do more of here at the RVC. Um, and um, for those adrenal glands that don't have a tumour which invades a, a blood vessel, I think that there um, could be huge benefits because these dogs, um, that well, the ones with Cushing's have poor wound healing. So, you know, the advantage of having a smaller wound is immediately evident. And I think one of the difficulties with open adrenal surgery is actually getting to that space, which is so dorsal and adjacent to the to that retroperitoneal space and it can be really difficult to actually retract all the organs away whereas um, when you um, do the minimally invasive approach basically you position the animal so that the organs are, have fallen away from that dorsal space where the um, adrenal glands are and I really think that the visualization of the adrenal gland is actually much better um, and uh, yeah so I think that for adrenal adrenalectomies for those um, dogs without invasion into the blood vessels, I think it will be a safer, more efficient, um, better technique than than doing it open. So I just need um, David Church to refer more bilateral adrenalectomies to surgery. <laughs> well, there you go. Hopefully we'll, we'll, we'll get him to listen to this, Carla, and, and, um, and maybe he can um, he can do that. Um, it, it, it's, do, you, do you think that minimum invasive sort of techniques are, are less forgiving than than open surgery i suppose what i'm trying to say is it is your um proficiency as a surgeon are are animals more forgiving um when you're an, an open surgeon compared to a minimally invasive surgeon or you know does it does it take a lot longer to be proficient or competent at a, at a procedure minimally invasively it's an interesting question um because I think that um, the way veterinary medicine is right now, um, especially surgeons, we learn the open way before we learn the minimally invasive way. Um, but I do think it's important for a minimally invasive surgeon to be able to do things via an open way if you run to complications and you have to convert. Um, I think that whilst um, the skills for minimally invasive surgery are very specific to it, I think that definitely you're you're using the skills also that you um, 
you had for open surgery. So um, I, it, an interesting story, I learned um, minimum invasive surgery um, beside first opinion vets who obviously, well, not necessarily obviously, but they had and done many more neutering procedures than I had done. And um, it, what struck me was that um, they much faster, the first opinion surgeons much faster could find, could see the ovaries and, and locate them. Um, and so definitely you transfer the skills from open to minimally invasive. And I, and I think that if you learn first the minimally invasive way, which I'm sure will come to pass in years to come, um, that, you know, the learning curve won't be seen as any steeper than if you learn something open. Yeah, this is quite interesting. I wonder whether what will what will happen in in that regard. Actually, and, and do you, do you think some of the drivers are are us, as in um, the, the the veterinarians driving minimally invasive, or do you think that the the client's perception, because it's done quite commonly in people, is is driving it, or or a bit of a bit of both? So I um, I think that um, the, the I think it would be driven primarily by the clients, I have to say. And I think it's because the vets, because we don't learn keyhole surgery when we're at, at vet school. Um, but I think if, if it started to enter the curriculum, that certainly would be driven by the vets as well, because the benefit to the patient is just... Um, it's just incredible you know when you if you for me to compare doing a pericardectomy via um, thoracoscopy versus an open chest you know the same you could send the dog home the same day after a pericardiectomy following a minimally invasive ap- approach but uh, following open surgery you know the dog's going to have a will, will stay in at, at least a few days so I think it will be driven initially by the clients because there is a higher financial outlay initially, but I think that hopefully it will be seen as normal to do many surgeries via a keyhole approach. And so the the cost will be absorbed into that normality. And, and personally, Carla, what, what do you like about it apart from obviously the, the, the benefits to the, to the patient? Do you, do you, like it as a as a surgeon do you enjoy um minimally invasive surgery i do enjoy it. i think so why do i enjoy it um um i think i'm quite a neat and tidy surgeon and so a minimally invasive surgery is so neat and tidy and with the vessel sealing devices you can have minimal blood loss um and i think that you know, we shouldn't say apart from the benefit to the animal, because when you see them in recovery and they don't look like they've had a surgery done apart from the huge clip that you did just in case you had to convert to open. And, um, you know, we've talked about, well, who who drives it? Some of the cases that I've done are basically it's vets coming in with their pets saying, I want you to do it via a keyhole approach, whereas I could do it open. I want you to do it via a keyhole approach. And what comes back to me is that, um, you know, it was as though they hadn't had a surgery, and that's got to be best, hasn't it? <laughs> no, absolutely, absolutely. That that sounds that sounds really good. Uh, I, I suppose just trying to think of where you know how 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 do you think things are going to progress in the in the next um, you know five ten years? Do you think a, a lot more? Um, you know, general practice, first opinion vets are, you know, will be more routinely doing um, space neuters 
in a keyhole way? And also, what, what do you think will happen with um, specialist surgeons? And do you, do you think that this will still be, will become more and more um, common and, and do more and more complicated things? Yeah, I think that it will become routine for spays and neuters to be keyhole in practice. Um, and um, I think because of that routine, it will drive the specialist surgeons to hopefully do more um, minimum invasive surgery. I think that we can think about, um, you know, when I was training to be a specialist surgeon, um, the use of staplers weren't routine in veterinary medicine, but they were already routine in, in human medicine. So I hope, and, you know, those staplers came at a cost, basically at that time it was an hour of surgery time was the cost of a of firing one line of staples um, to, for example, remove a, a lung lobe. Um, and so um, I hope that um, with time we will see it as routine and maybe the, you see the cost of the equipment becomes less compared to um, surgical time and, and our, our own costs. Um, so as we, as the costs of vessel sealing devices comes down, um, staplers you, being used for, that you need for those um, minimum invasive surgeries, as the costs of those come down um, relative to our other costs, hopefully it will, I really hope that it becomes seen as, as more routine. I think we will always do, um, there will always be some things that must be done open. I mean, a large, um, abdominal mass if you need to make a big incision in order to take it out then it does make sense to start off open um, but I think uh, certainly we should be doing I'm hoping that we'll see more um, keyhole surgeries um, being done every day. And do you think there's going to be an increase in, in people um, like your veterinary courses or veterinary specific sort of training you mentioned a, a group in in Spain do you but you think that's going to increase as well are you starting to 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 see that or are you you getting requests for cpd in in um minimum invasive surgery so um we um ran our first uh cpd course this year um at the rvc for laparoscopy which i was very excited about um and um so i think there is a demand um we um it was a combined course which began with um a one-day course um, at the Royal Free where there was an introduction to laparoscopy, you know, the benefits, um, complications, um, access to the abdomen. And then we um, basically, the second phase was um, um, practicing on the computer simulators um, and they had a a set program to upskill. And then the third stage was going to be um, um, applying those skills um, actually here at the at the vet school um, in Hawkshead. Sadly, that didn't happen due to COVID, but um, we're still planning for next year's course. And um, yeah, we look forward to running more. Um, this The course that we ran this year, we had um, uh, a great group of eight um, and the, the delegates were limited because of the number of computer simulators um, that we have at the Royal Free. Um, but hopefully next year we're going to um, double that number and hopefully we won't get disrupted again and you say so there is quite a a bit of a demand for for this as people want to um get a get a bit more experience or get more um understanding of it under their belt before they um try it on in in 
real life. Well, absolutely. And I think that, um, and it's not, it's not just, um, you know, learning a new, so we did have um, lots of um, um, young vets who um, hadn't ever done any laparoscopic surgery, that, but then we did have more experienced vets who'd done lots of nutrients, but they wanted to know how to progress from that. Um, yeah, how do you how do you do other things apart from nutrient? And um, yeah, so there's definitely a demand. I, I think that when you look for um, laparoscopic courses in veterinary medicine, um, there are courses out there to learn how to neuter, but not um, much more. Well, not in the UK, and the courses um, across worldwide are really targeted towards specialist surgeons. Whereas I think that you know we can upskill in in without being um board certified surgeon yeah it's, it's really interesting we've got a we've got a whole whole range in in veterinary surgery don't we from uh, still using cat cut to uh, laparoscopic surgery it's quite quite and and, and uh, it's something there for everyone <laughs> it's quite uh, it's quite quite interesting um but uh, but that's that's it's really it's i think it's very interesting that um how, how this is coming about and almost like a like a natural progression i imagine the technology was just too expensive initially for for vets to get in involved with or and and now as um i imagine that i mentioned it's still expensive but not as um as expensive and because obviously everything needs to um, be trying you know, the costs need to go back to the, obviously the client and they see so so, so you, it's good that te- as technology is improving things are becoming cheaper to enable um these advances to be to be made yeah and i think that um there is transfers you said as you pointed out you can use the same tower for arthroscopy laparoscopy and um even for some people are using the same towers for um, their routine endoscopies as well. So it just depends on the kit that you initially got um, when you started out doing, you know, endoscopy or arthroscopy, whether it can be used for all of these um, procedures. So, so what uh, colour are you um, are you working on now to, uh, to, to upskill specifically apart from your adrenalectomies? Well, I'd love to do, well, now that... Um, um, our oncology services up and running. I'd really like to do more um, um, thoracoscopies and, as I say, to really um, do more um, um, lung lobectomies. I think that, um, you know, I think one of the controversies maybe in um, oncology and thoracotomies is what do you do with the patient who's stable but just seems to have one met in a lung lobe? Um, you know, should we be doing thoracotomies? Whereas I think if we can say, well, we can do it in a minimally invasive way, then actually it's not a big deal to the dog. We find out the diagnosis and hopefully that's something that we can start offering um, our clients. Yeah. Well, um, Carla, do you you think we sort of missed out um, anything particular um, talking about minimally invasive surgery as I suppose as as an introduction? I don't think so. I think you've covered it all. <laughs> well, you've covered it all. I just <laughs> pointed you in certain directions. Um, so thank you very much for your your time, Carla. It's been um, fascinating to to talk to you about this and um, um, make. I don't know whether it makes me think I wish I did surgery again because I think some of it is, seems quite scary not being able to 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 see, well to see but not to necessarily feel or, or be able to deal with it. I don't think that's just a 
a learning thing that that one would have to overcome for that. Yeah, because you can see and feel. Yeah, <laughs> but it's just it's just learning how to again, isn't it? That's the that's the thing. Um, but yeah, no, thank you so so much for your time. Um, it's uh, that's great, and and thank you everyone for for listening. So. Don't forget to hit that subscribe button on your generic fruit-based device, and that way you don't even have to worry about missing a podcast. If you could leave us a review, five-star review, Apple Podcast, Acast, that would be great. And don't forget to tell your friends, vet friends, or any others. We'll welcome anyone to listen to this. And we'll play some show notes on the RVC pages. So if you just type in RVC Clinical Podcast into your search engine of choice, it should be top of the tree. So if you have any comments or suggestions for this podcast, please get in touch. You can either email dbarfield at rvc.ac.uk or tweet at Tom Barfield. Until next time. Bye-bye.